And so today, where we want to begin, is we want to see whether or not truly are we living in the end times. And so open up to Daniel 7. And so I cannot explain to you why this is going to be the case. Because there's too much to be said regarding this. So I'll just give you the conclusion. Just give you the conclusion regarding the overall schedule. And I hope that you, this video will come into you. And as you go back home, you will listen again and, and receive what you may have lost. And also, uh, the message of Costa Rica that we spoke of last, last week is also really important. So please also listen to that message as well. And I don't know how good your internet is. And it might not be easy to see our website. But if possible, come into our webpage. And if you look at the Spanish side, it talks about, uh, it has all the various uh, sermons in, in it that we've done at our conference. So it may not be easy to download. Um, as I said yesterday, uh, the sign of wickedness is rapid, is speediness. And there are many e wickedness in Korea, and that's why Korea is so fast. In Korea, everything is fast. It's not a very good thing. And so when I mix this to you, I see that you do not have much Babylonian spirit. And so you receive the things of God very well. That's very good. And so do not pray that Honduras will develop in a worldly way. Because this is complete opposite of, of the kingdom of heaven. So don't look for the civilization of the, of the first world countries. The kingdom of heaven and the gospel of heaven came through Israel, which was the backwater of the world. It went through this poor Israel first.
And so it's not always a good thing to be developed and, and, and culturally um, um, developed. Amen? So let's continue. If you look at Daniel 7, Daniel sees the visions of four beasts. And these four beasts in verse 17 says that these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And then in verse 23, it says that uh, the four beasts are four kingdoms. And so these beasts are kings as well as beasts, uh, nations. What is the first beast? The first beast looks like uh, a lion with wings of an eagle. And so Daniel 7 is showing you what's going to happen in the history of the nations in the future. So many people think that this is talking about media, media Persia and also of Babylon. But the reason why this is not the case is because chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter, or actually no, chapter 10 talks about another vision regarding Medio Persia. And so these four beasts is not talking about, about Medio Persia. And also, as it says in chapter 2, is that the visions of Daniel is for the end of days. So, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, these nations have already come and gone. It's not the end of days. So, it's not talking about the end of days. And so, the vision of the four beasts are nations that are going to come in the end of days. And so if these nations that are prophesied here exist today, that means that we are clearly in the end of days. And then also if you look at verse 11, it talks about the judgment of the Antichrist. And it's the same prophecy as Revelation 19. And if you look at Revelation 19, you see that the Lord returns. And the Antichrist and the false prophet gets captured. And before the great throne of judgment, they get thrown into the lake of fire. And I pray to God that when they get thrown into the lake of fire, give me the privilege to kick them in. I don't know if he'll answer me or not, but because for the past 32 years, I fought against them severely, very intensely. And so either one or the other has to die. But I will not die. 
And so how much wrath Jesus has for them that he judges them before the great throne white judgment. Then verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, and so of the ten horns, the one horn being revealed is the Antichrist. Then who are the remaining beasts? It is talking about the remaining horns that are there. And one of the horns is the Antichrist. And so that one horn gets judged and is, de is destroyed. But the other horns are still alive. And so the remaining beasts are still alive until the end of time. And so these ten nations, the remaining of them, still exist even when the end times come. And so we're talking about the earlier three beasts. The lion, the leopard, and the bear. And so this is saying that they are still alive at the end times. And so when the millennial kingdom comes, these nations as they exist will still be there. For example, America will still exist. And so I'm not saying that the name of the country is going to exist. Now, I mean, sure, they may be, but what I'm talking about is that the nations, the nations will once again reorganize according to nationality. And so in the Millennial Kingdom, Israel will still be there. And we'll, if we want to see this, we have to look through the prophecies of Isaiah. And so when the Millennial Kingdom comes, Honduras will still be in existence. There is going to be much confusion. And so maybe some nations will disappear. But the remaining beast will exist, that is for sure. And so if these beasts, if these nations of the beast still exist today, then clearly we are in the end times. And so let's see what these three nations are then. And to see that clearly this is the end times. And so I'm pretty sure no one's going to believe that this one's going to exist another 100, 200, 300 years. And because God has allowed me to give this time frame to you, and so let's talk about this. And so this world is going to end within 50 years. Of course, that's still plenty of time. And so go ahead, get married. Uh, 
Why? Because we have more than 50, we have about 50 years, right? And then soon, for example, there is a prophecy that all the prophets prophesy together, and it is the prophecy of the Third World War. And when the Third World War begins, at the time of the ending of that Third World War, it begins the countdown for Jesus' return. And this is what all the prophets say. Even after Jesus returns, uh, it's, it's prophesied of when the, when, the prophes when the warfare will end. And so why does God uh, accurately talk at the times? It's to give us confidence that I will return. That I will return. That is what he is saying to us. And so he tells us in detail. And if you look at Zechariah, it tells us what's going to happen in Israel in the uh, second half of the tribulation. That in one month, uh, prime ministers are going to change three times. Even that kind of prophecy is written in the Bible. And so God is giving this clear sign of his return. Why? To give us confidence of his return. And so do not doubt his return. And so before this time comes, of course, there's going to be suffering, trials, or tribulations. But what's clear is that we will pass through with the Lord. And when He returns, we are going to proclaim the victory with the Lord. And so the focus is not on, on suffering, but the focus is on victory. And so if you look at suffering, what you should see is that, ah, it's soon time for the Lord's return. And so there's no reason to be afraid of suffering and or, or of tribulation. Because if the Lord is with us, we can, we can um, go through this suffering. And so as the Lord blessed the church in Philadelphia, he says that I will pass through this suffering with you. And so suffering is not a big deal. Suffering in itself is not the problem. The problem is not being with the Lord. Amen? If we are with the Lord, then we can go through any trial, any tribulation. Because that is who our God is. He loves us and He is someone who is able to keep His love. And so if you don't have money, uh, God, if in order to love you, He's willing to give you money. If problem is an issue then, and, and because of problem, uh, because that problem there's no love, then He'll give you power. Amen? And so in this way, He can 
keep his love and he can guard his love for you that there's nothing he will hold back for his church and so if you need it he would give you this entire universe that's why he is our creator God and so do not doubt him amen Oh, that pastor, you know, he's just bluffing. No, they don't doubt that, right? Why? Because even, and so even this one man's word has authority, then why doubt the word of God? Amen? So let's continue. And so it says that uh, the first beast was a lion and had eagle's wings. And so what's the, yeah, what's the country that is represented by a lion in this day and age? It's England. Right? England is the nation of a lion. If you go to London, there are statues of lions all over London. But it says on the the lion has wings of an eagle, and and that these wings were plucked. And what's the nation that represents an eagle in this day and age? There are a lot of eagles in the back over there. It's America, right? America came from England. So look at how accurate this this prophecy is. It's talking about the relationship between England and America. That, Amer that England is going to exist until the Lord returns. And then the same beast in Daniel 7 is, is described in Revelation 13. And so this is already 500 years after Daniel prophesied. And so 500 years later, John, Apostle John confirms the prophecy of Daniel. And so these beasts, when Daniel prophesied them, they were separate. But in Revelations, they are one body. They are one. Revelations 13 is talking about the one world order. The one world order of the Antichrist. And in the Revelations, there is no eagle. It's in Daniel 7. And so that means America is not going to be part of that new world order. And that's why the headquarters of UN has to move to Europe. And so this is prophecy of America and England. And what's the second beast? The second beast is a bear. And what's the nation that is represented as a bear? It's Russia, right? And so it seems like Russia is roaring against Europe and fighting with Europe. 
But remember that they are all on one side. They are not separate. Russia will be part of the one world order. And Russia is really important in these end times. <laughs> so this has to be described in Ezekiel 37. That Russia is the, one of the nations that's going to begin the Third World War. And so the bear is Russia, clearly. And so I cannot explain to you in detail. But just either accept it in faith or throw it away. That's up to you. Or verse 6 shows a leopard. And what's the nation that's represented by a leopard in this day and age? It is Germany. How can you tell? Look at the look at all the various symbols of Germany there, and the names of their tanks. It's all leopards, and Germany is going to be a very important nation. And so in Revelations 13, this leopard has four heads. And so this uh, leopard is going to con conquer four eras. And also Germany is the fourth head, the last head. And so, and so we went through three Reichs, right? Hitler, uh, the Kaiser, and then also the Holy Roman Empire. And so the third head looked as if it was completely dead. Right? It got separated into East and West Germany. But that head comes back alive. In 1989, Germany was reunified. And so look, this is all recorded in the prophecies. Even the, um, the, 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 the reunification of Germany is prophesied. And then this leopard has three wings. And it says that it's the wings of a chicken in the original language. And what's the country that is represented by a chicken? It's France. And so France and Germany will get will be will work together. But at the same time, these these wings get plucked. And the la one evidence of this last days is that there's going to become a, a EU ar army. And even right now in the EU, they're discussing um, making a military arm force. And who is going to lead this army is going to be France and Germany. And in, this, uh, in the latter half of the tribulation, that uh, France is going to rise up against Germany. And Germany is going to swallow up France. And so amongst the, uh, the ten horns, there's one horn, another small horn, and that small horn is, is the Antichrist. And this horn eats three horns. 
And amongst those three horns, one of it is France. And so where's the proof? I'll, I'll explain it soon. And so where are these three nations? England, France, uh, Germany, and Russia. These three nations are going to gather the ten horns and create the one world order. And so verse 7, it talks about the Holy Roman Empire. And as you well know, that before 1989, before Germany was resurrected, um, was reunited, uh, the Holy Roman Empire was already being formed. They gathered in Portugal to re revive the Holy Roman Empire. And the one that influenced this was the Roman Catholic Church. And through Gorbachev in Russia, they opened the perestroika, right? The perestroika. And the perestroika was opening up to the nations. And so through that Russia, uh, they began the revival of the Holy Roman Empire. And it was, it was granted through Germany. And Gorbachev was influenced on all of this, all, all of this decision by the Roman Catholic Church. So they are all one team. And so I cannot explain all of this in detail, but the important thing is that in these end times, these nations are going to be the nation of the Antichrist. Then where does the Antichrist come? And I said I'm going to, say, to reveal this soon, but it's not yet time. But what is clear is that he's coming come from Europe. Amongst the, the kings and princes of, of Europe. And so though the spirit did not yet enter into him, already he's moving, in, the spirit is moving in the background. For example, uh, climate change. This has great influence over this. And so already the person who's going to be used as the Antichrist is active. And so for example, like the world, a form of, the, of world economy, uh, that has great influence over this. Uh, world Bank, this also has amazing, uh, great influence over this. And so, for example, like like the Rothschild family, they're going. There's many people working in the background to help the Antichrist. Freemasons. Okay, they they all uh, you know belong in secret societies in Harvard, right? And uh, our secret societies, secret societies that are going to help the Antichrist. And so when I went to Costa Rica, there was a lot of influence of, of the Freemasons. At least Honduras doesn't seem to have too much. I guess they don't, they don't care about Honduras.
of course it, they have some influence, but but how interested are they in 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 how influential are they in that country? And so is this the end times? Can you see? Yes, this, the day and age that we are living in is the end times. And another thing we want to see is chapter 9, verse 25. And so Daniel sees things as the seven, as the seven weeks uh, uh, the 70 weeks, which is for, which from from Jerusalem being built to Jesus' return and, and into the future. And so that's what this is talking about in 9, 24, 25 to 27. Okay, so 70 weeks is talking about seven years. Okay. So it's talking about seven years. And so you have to uh, tie this in with the words of Leviticus. And so, and so Daniel uh, divides this into seven parts, or uh, three parts. 70 weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. And so, and then in, in these weeks, there is periods of time in between these three weeks, three sections. If not, then that means, if you do not calculate it this way, that means that Jesus would return in 492 years. And that's not the case, right? Already more than time has passed. And so these are talking about various intervals. And so the first weeks is 49 years, right? Jeremiah prophesied that 49 years after Israel is, as Judah is destroyed, they will rebuild the temple. And it was clear, it was in 49 years after Cyrus conquered Babylon and re allowed uh, Israel to build the temple. And then the 62 weeks is taking a long time. And so uh, it's going to take a long time to explain this, but simply speaking, that these 62 weeks is where the, the anointed one is going to die. So this is speaking of Jesus, as you'll see in chapter 26. And so already these 62 weeks have passed by. And so we're waiting for this one week. We are in the time of this one week. And to be more accurate, we are in that interval time between the 62 weeks and the one week. And so what we're waiting for is this one week, which is seven years. And so we don't know when these seven years will come upon us. 
but there is evidence of when it will come. That when that for this before the seven weeks uh, seven years happen, there's going to be a time of great peace of the nations. And what this is is after the third world war, there's going to be so much death and destruction. And so the, uh, they're going to give to the one world order. Uh, the One World Order is going to bring Palestine and Israel to, to compromise. And so that in the Mount of the Temple, in the Temple Mount, they're going to acknowledge the, the, the Golden Dome, that, Israel, that Islam youth offer sacrifice here. And then from about 70 meters from the Golden Dome, there's another rock. And right below that is where the Holy of Holies used to stand. And in that Holy of Holies to the west, they're going to establish the next, the third temple. So the third temple. And this is the prophecy of Zechariah 8. So Israel is already prepared to, uh, for, uh, has all the necessary things to build the next temple. Even all the various uh, gold, uh, the various linen and cloth, all the instruments, and even Kohen have been trained, the priesthood have been trained. And so in the desert, eight-year-old boys are being trained to, for the priesthood. And so they have already rebuilt all the harps and the various lyres that were played during the times of, of, of David and also the menorah. The menorah, there's a menorah of 500 kilograms worth of gold. And all of this has already been prepared, has already been made. And so all preparations have been already made. And so now, it, if when the when this uh, peace happens uh, in three months, they can build the new temple. And so all preparation is prepared. But God is very angry with that work. He does, he's not pleased with that. Why? Because God has already restored Israel. But through the world, the third world war. Of course, already in 1949, Israel has been reformed as a nation. But all the promised land to Abraham has not yet been restored. But through the Third World War, that, that all that land will be restored. But because Israel will compromise with the world, they're going to uh, fall back on the promise of God. But either way, in the first half of the tribulation, this, this time of peace is going to be led by the Antichrist. And then finally, when the, when the latter half of the tribulation begins, that in that temple, the Antichrist is going to declare that he is God in that temple. 
And so what's going to happen regarding that, uh, the words for that, it takes too much time. But either way, the Antichrist, when he declares that he is God, that is the beginning of the latter half of the, of the, of the tribulation. And so when is this going to happen? It's right, right before the Third World War. And it's waiting for that last week, that, that last seven years. And when does that seven year, last seven years begin? That the moment uh, that 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 uh, council of peace happens, and so it's probably going to be played all broadcast all over the world through television, so everyone will know. Everyone will know. And so when does the latter half of the tribulation begins? It's when the Antichrist comes on TV and declares himself as God, and that means that the three and a half years is left for the Lord. To for the Lord's return. And so this is the overall picture of the time frame. Understand? And so there's not that much time left, right? And so we're living in the interval time of, uh, between the 62 weeks and the one week. And in that interval, uh, we're waiting for these prophets to be fulfilled, prophecies to be fulfilled. It's amazing, isn't it? Of how the word of God is being fulfilled. And we are living in a time where all prophecies are fulfilled. And there's not much left. They're almost all fulfilled. Señorita, hey, señorita, una más para. And so we want uh, that. All the way over there. All the way at the end. Una más. And so the pastors who are sitting in the back over there, they keep telling me I have to live for a long time. And so they curse me this way. There's no reason to live for a long time. I want to hurry up and go to heaven. Uh, but I want that nation that's going to restore my dignity to hurry up and come, amen? And so do not curse me. Don't curse me, okay? Okay, you don't need to live for a long time. Now, of course, when God takes me, he's going to let me know a month beforehand. Now, let's get ready to go home. And then I just have to prepare to get ready, ready to go home. So let's begin. And so first, let's look at his. Um, let's look at his um, first uh, first come, because starting from his coming to his advent, uh, we call this the end times. Uh, 
And so that's why uh, the early church, even from Paul's time, expected that their times would be when the Lord would return. But they spoke this way because they failed to see a couple various um, prophecies in the Bible. And so like the prophecy of Daniel, uh, when the time of, 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 of wisdom comes, when all the revelation gets opened, and so uh, the revelation of a couple revelation, uh, prophecies were not open to the early church. And so they were preparing for the Lord to return in their lifetime. And so the church was established very quickly. Uh, they didn't feel like they needed to record anything down because they expected Jesus to return soon. They thought within that generation, so within 30 years. But as they see, as they noticed, they noticed that the Lord was not returning around AD 70. And that's when the early church began writing down uh, the Bible. And so the very first book to be recorded was the book of Mar Mark. And, and honestly, all the other books of the Bible, weren't they weren't written with that intent, but they were just simply letters. And so uh, the only uh, thing that they felt needed to be recorded was maybe the four Gospels. And then they realized that, oh, all of a sudden, that maybe they will not see the Lord's return. Because God did not open all of these things to them just yet, and so they were not—they could not know. And in AD 70, when uh, Titus uh, completely destroys Jerusalem, that's when the early church begin to acknowledge that their time frame was wrong. And so they begin to uh, pour every effort into proclaiming the gospel. Through the diaspora, as they spread out all over the nations, they, they, they take the gospel with them. But what is the times that we are living in now? That all the prophecies of the Bible, has, the revelations of the prophecies have been opened. That all the puzzles have been put into peace, place. It's not because we are smarter than the early church, but because God has opened up these revelations. And so we can see the perfect time of God, of Jesus' return. And so if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus said in the gospel that no one will know the hour. And that hour is the word hora in Greek, which is physical time. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.1, we can know the season, the time of, of, of Jesus' return. And there are clear evidences of those seasons, of when that season will come. 
And so Jesus' return will not be like a thief coming in the night. We will be able to see when he will return. And so what are the seasons? That if you look at if you look at when Jesus came on the earth, he came during the time of the Feast of Booth. And in the prophecies, prophets, it talks about one of the most important um, celebrations, Feast of Israel, and which is the Feast of Booths. This is the national holiday of the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Because it was on that Feast of Booths that Jesus comes. And so we don't know what year, but we know what month. Jesus' first, uh, his nativity was during the Feast of Booths, and his advent is also going to be during the Feast of Booths. And so that's why during that time, Zoe Ministry, we are always in Israel. Even this year, we're going to go during the Feast of Booths. We're actually going before the Feast of Booths. And so we're waiting for, or we're preparing His way. So that if He comes, we could also go up with Him, just in case. And so let's look at His nativity. And there are many uh, prophecies regarding his nativity. Uh, even his prophecy regarding his first coming uh, came to be. But there are many um, uh, prophecies about his return. And so he will clearly return. And so there are many things to look at, but let's just look at one. Isaiah 42, 1. Isaiah 42, 1. And so the prophets in the Old Testament are prophesying that the Messiah is coming. But they have one common thing when they all prophesy. Even Daniel says that that Messiah is a man. And so look at this. This is an amazing prophecy, isn't it? If I was a Jew, I would have said he's God. But he says that the Messiah is man. And this is the most important thing to the doctrine of Christ. And this is what the Vatican has corrupted. And so look at verse two, or chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold. And so this I is Yahweh, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And so this is clearly talking about the Messiah. I have put my spirit upon him. And so who did he choose? His man. And so all the, anti uh, all the prophets of the Old Testament say, uh, prophesy that he is a man. And so he is the perfect son of God. 
right? That is his identity as the Son of God. And so the most important thing for us to know is what our identity is. But the important thing is that he had this identity, but he never availed, he never used that identity on this earth. He did not use the power and authority of that identity on this earth. He cannot say to people that he is the Son of God. What's the problem with that if he does? Then our salvation is no longer uh, available. Why? Because it must be man who deals with the sins of man. And so he is the Son of God, but he kept his identity hidden. We call this the messianic secret. And he lived as a man. And at the same time, he cannot sin even once. And so he emptied himself and relied upon the Holy Spirit. And so as the prophecy, prophets prophesy of the Messiah, there are two clear things that he is man. And yet he will come with the Holy Spirit. Let's look here. I have put my spirit upon him. And so he relies fully upon the Holy Spirit. And so it's important that he says, whom I have chosen, and this word bar, is that it, in order to choose one, you have to throw one away. And so by him choosing the body of a man, he had to cast away the, the, his, his, his divinity, his identity as son of God. And this word, is, as it is, is used in the New Testament that we have been called and we have been chosen. What is this chosenness? What is this election? That because I have chosen the Son of God, I have to cast away this world. If not, if you only live with your calling, as it says in Matthew 22, that you will be ashamed before God when you meet with Him. And these kinds of servants will be cast out where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. But there's some part of the glory of God that you are missing out on. And so let us be faithful to our election. Revelations 11:17 says the same thing. That those who are faithful to their calling and election... This is the remnant. And so the prophets of the Old Testament are very clear in their prophecy regarding the Messiah. That he is man. And that he cast away his identity as, as God. And his, he came in the spirit of God. Isn't this an amazing prophecy? And Micah also prophesied the same, prophesied the same thing. And Isaiah continues to prophesy this, Isaiah 53. Even now, the Jews do not look at Isaiah 53. Why does the Messiah have to suffer? Because he is mad. Because of our sins, he suffers. 
And so for the most part, when it comes to interpretation of the Bible, you have to uh, see the New Testament through the light of the Old Testament. But Isaiah 53, this is the only one that goes the opposite way. That you can only understand Isaiah 53 by interpreting it through the light of the New Testament of Jesus dying on the cross. And so, the Jews still cannot understand Isaiah 53 today. Why? Because they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ. And so if they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ forever, then the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is a secret forever. And so Jesus came and, and formed the church and the church grew. But at the same time, the church becomes powerless. And this is the prophecy that the early church failed to see. Because during the time of Paul, it would, it would have been unimaginable for the church to be powerless. Why? Because the church belongs to God. Because he is the head. Jesus is the head. And so how can the church become powerless? This is something that they could not understand. And it's not something that would have even come to their minds because they would not have imagined it. And so we're going to look at Isaiah 23 and 24. And there's no one who considers this as, uh, as a prophecy. And this is the aspect that was close to the early church. Why did God close this? There may be many reasons. Because it may have been uh, a bit depressing to those who have given everything for this church to realize that the church is going to go through a time of powerlessness. Is that all oh, the church that we established right now is going to get powerless? And so maybe that's why uh, God closed the doors to this prophecy. But in our day and age, uh, the powerless day of the church is upon us. But soon, we have the hope that, that, that the church is going to be restored to the power of the, and glory of the early church. So that's why God opened this revelation to us. And so look at chapter 23, verse 14. Uh, 24, 13. It says... Uh, 14. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. So this is uh, the Lord being proclaimed all over the world. And then verse 15. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. And there's only one meaning for this word east. It's about fires. Uh, 
And so in the, it's translated as the East right now, right? Therefore, in the East, give glory to the Lord. And so Koreans love this verse because they think it's them. They think that this is Korea. But and so if you don't see the original text, you get you get deceived. And so this is talking about fires or torches. Why? That in the midst of suffering, the church is continually growing. And so the past 2,000 years of the history of the church has been a time of suffering, right? And in suffering, this gospel has been proclaimed. And that's what's being proclaimed here. And so in the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. So it's talking about the uh, growth of the church. And yet, in the middle of the verse 16, all of a sudden the atmosphere changes. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. And this, this I is the Lord, right? And so the Lord is going to um, depress this area. He's going to sink everything down. This is because the powerless age of the era of the church is upon us. And then in verse 17, 18, it prophesies of the Lord's return. And so the time frame of Isaiah 24 is that that the Lord will return at the time when the church, powerless, the era of the powerless church ends. And then so if you combine this with other prophecies, there's much that happens in between. But from the big picture, after the end of the powerlessness church, uh, that's when Jesus will return. And Isaiah 26 has the same prophecy. Verse 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done all for us, all our works. And so it's talking about Lord, uh, all he has fulfilled when he came to this earth. And so they rely upon God and they call upon his name. But then in verse 14, they are dead, they will not live. And so let's keep going because we don't have time. And so it's and until verse 16, it continually talks about the multiplication of the church, the growth of the church. But all of a sudden, again, the atmosphere changes. Like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so are we because of you, O Lord. And so a, Lord is, uh, so a woman is giving birth, and so she's going through birthing pains. And so she's getting ready to give birth. But um, 
But there comes a salvation we have accomplished with no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world will fall. And so it's, it's fertility with infertility. And so it's talking about how the, the, that the our church can no longer see people being saved. And then in verse 19, it talks about resurrection. And so Isaiah 26, the time frame is, is that the church has growth. And then the church has powerlessness, where it's like a, a woman giving birth, and though she works hard to give birth, all she gives birth to is air. And then finally we see the resurrection of being raptured up to the Lord. And so, uh, the Lord's return and the, and the powerlessness of the church era is combined. And so when the powerlessness of the church era finishes, that's when other prophecies also needs to be applied in preparation for the Lord's return. And so because the early church was failed to see the uh, era of the powerless church, that's why they thought that the Lord would return during their time in era. For example, look at the church in Corinth. The church compared to churches in this day would have been praised for being such a powerful and amazing church. But in Paul's eyes, this does not match up to the standard of the church of God. Because they have lost the purity of holiness. And so why does Paul so passionately write letters to the Corinth? to keep teaching them? There are many reasons. But because his return is close, that he does not want the church to lose sight of its purity. And so Paul felt shame and, and, and pain at, at, at Corinth in his body. And yet he continually uh, revives Corinth. Why? Because there's not much time for the Lord's return. And so the early church failed to see the powerless era of the church. It's after the era of powerlessness that the Lord returns. And so in this day and age, we see this. And for the past, uh, for about the past hundred years, God has allowed a great harvest in the world. I don't know exactly. But until about 1980, or the beginning of the 1980s, there was a lot of great harvest of saving of souls. And yet at the same time, the church entered into the era of powerlessness, starting from Europe and America, and then later Asia. And now, all over the world, the church is spending the final times of the era of the powerless church. And so now is no longer the time for harvest. Now is the time to store up the grain in the barn. 
And so, pastors, what should be the focus of your ministry? It's not to bring salvation into new people. Rather, where, you sh where your ministry should be weighted towards. I'm not saying don't do this. But I'm saying is, is that's not where your energy should be focused on. That if God allows, then you just continue. Because honestly, right now, the doors of salvation are closing and closing and closing. And so the energy that you should be pouring out upon is to raise up one spirit, one soul into the perfect holy remnant. That is the most important focus for your pastoral ministry. And so it's not a, and so what it, that means is, is don't try to grow your churches by bringing more and more people in. That time is no longer upon us. I'm not telling you to not save people. Okay, because salvation we're going to do until the Lord returns. But that's not where we are to focus our energy. That's what I'm trying to say. Rather, our energy should be focused on the church members that are in our church, pouring our everything upon them so that they can grow to be a holy and pure bride until they grow to glorification. And so pastors, you are making a mistake if you think that, oh, I need to try to grow my numbers. That means you have not yet been able to discern the times. I'm not telling you to I'm not telling you to not to go out and proselytize. You need to continually go out, outreach to the nations. But do not pour out your energy and be exhausted here. You need to pour more of your energy out into leading your church members into glorification. Please have faith. If you go to America, there's the church Hillsong and Bethel. They gather more than 100,000 people, a million people. And do you know what they say? It's okay if you're gay, it's okay if you're Islam, whoever you are, come to our church. That's how they proclaim the gospel. And so they bring people, all kinds of people in. And so they have a million people. And when they have small groups, they have small groups at bars and alcohol places. That's no longer the Church of God. Joel Austin in Texas, this prosperity gospel, that's not faith. That's prosperity. It's, it's, it's positive thinking. All over the world, the devil is weakening the church. And so that's why I'm telling you, do not be like the churches of Korea. Do not be like the churches in America. What that means is don't follow after these false uh, trends. The only thing that we should put our sights on is the early church. That we need to once again be like the early church. That's why we are trying to restore the truth. We need to have the we need to have the pure truth in order to be like the early church. And so look at how important these two prophecies of Isaiah are. 
and so understand that we are at the final stages of the era of powerlessness of the church. Do you acknowledge this? And so now as this time passes by, we're going to enter to the end times. And the most important thing, the most important thing that all the prophets prophesy of is the Third World War. Why do all the prophets prophesy, prophesy the Third World War? As I said earlier, it's because from that beginning you can accurately count the, until Jesus' return. And so when is the Third World War going to happen? So let's look at that. Verse Isaiah 17. It talks about, uh, it is an oracle coming Damascus. The Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. And so there's going to come a moment where Damascus becomes a ruin and cannot be restored. And so this is a, revel a prophecy regarding the Third World War. I, can, I don't have time to explain why. But either way, we'll understand that the Third World War begins when we see Damascus becoming a ruin. Another area that we could look is Aleppo. There's a city named Aleppo in Syria. Aleppo also becomes a, a graveyard. It's somewhere in Zechariah, I don't remember exactly where, but... And so there, this, um, in Genesis 16, the, the blowing of the trumpet is the prophecy, the sixth prophecy, sorry, Revelation 9, is the sixth trumpet. And so what's going on in Damascus right now? It's becoming a ruin. And even now, on average, Israel sends um, um, rockets into Damascus about twice a week. And Aleppo is a place where people can no longer live. This is a city in northern Syria. Look at how accurate these prophecies are. It prophesied about Aleppo and about uh, Damascus. And Damascus is becoming a ruin. And so we will not see Damascus being restored in our lifetime. And really, Damascus will not be restored. It's going to remain as a, a, a ruin. And so as we see this, what we're seeing is the Third World War is beginning. And so the sixth trumpet has been blown. It just simply 
the war just has not officially started. And so when does this war officially start? This is from Ezekiel 37, 38. 38-39. And so this begins when Turkey and Russia become united and come to attack Israel. That's when the Third World War will begin. And expanding this prophecy, when Iran has prepared to make a nuclear weapon, Israel is going to invade Iran. And Turkey is going to unite the Sunnis and the Shias meaning a new caliphate is going to be established. And there's a high chance that the president of Turkey right now, Erdogan, could become the caliph. And so this third world war will begin by Putin. Putin will begin it. And so uh, Israel will attack Iran and Turkey as protector of Islam will fight, Israel, will attack Israel. And who's going to help Turkey? It's going to be Russia. That's how the Third World War will begin. And you will see this happen soon. And we talked about many things. But Zechariah 9 to 11 is the prophecy of the Third World War. And Obadia, many other places there are prophecies of this Third World War. But in conclusion, Third World War will finish with Israel being the victory. There will be God's uh, hand at play. And so they'll restore the east bank of the Jordan and they'll restore portions of Lebanon and also portions of Syria and also towards Egypt uh, restore the land there in the Sinai and what's going to happen is that the diaspora all over the world they are all going to come back to Israel there's about 6 million, 7 million people in, in, in Israel. After the Third World War, there's going to be about 12, 14 million. And so all the land promised to Abraham is going to be restored. Now, of course, Israel is going to suffer, but they're going to end in victory. And how long is it going to take to clean up after the Third World War? It's going to take seven years. Uh, seven months. And how many people are going to die? So many people that it's going to cover the valley in, 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 in the Jordan. And it's going to take seven months just to get rid of all the dead bodies. Revelations 9 says... 220,000 or 
20, a lot of people are going to die. And at the end of that, for seven years, the world is going to enter a time of chaos where ec the economics of the world is going to be paralyzed. That time is coming upon us. It's amazing, yes? And why is this going to happen? Because so many people are going to die. And this warfare is going to be a warfare of nuclear weapons. And so all of uh, the world economy will come to ruin. And as all of this gets organized and cleaned up, the UN is going to bring about a peace for the world. And another important thing during the Third World War as Isaiah 57.15 says that in the remnant there's going to be a revival of true repentance. In Zechariah 5, from Zechariah 5 verse 5, this begins a vision. A glorious church that is separate from Babylon will, be, will appear. And that's going to happen in this decade. In this decade, from the Gentiles, there needs to be this glorious church. And so you and me, it, this time is very important to us. This decide, these te decade will determine, uh, will, God will allow us to rise up as a glorious church. So the reason why I'm inviting you to our church is to show you that these, this church is already being made. That as we spent the time during the coronavirus, that God has transformed the church completely. Now, of course, before the coronavirus, God worked in our church. But after the coronavirus, our, our church has been completely transformed. And now, in just a little while, like Zechariah 5, we're going to be a church that is completely separate from the world. That the glory of the early church is going to be perfectly restored. So this conference is very good, yes? But this presence and anointing is going to continually flow in the church. And this isn't a special thing. This should be normal and common. For 24 hours, the uh, incense continually goes up to God. And the church members are constantly gathering at the church, constantly being renewed in the church. And instead of looking for them out for themselves, giving up and taking care of one another, and being a church that can truly die for one another, that church is going to be revealed in this decade. It is the revival of the church of the remnant. And so do you understand how important this next decade is? And then so now let's look at the tribulation. 
And as I said earlier, Daniel 9, after the end of the Third World War, they're going to come into this peace conference and there's going to be peace all over the world. And so when that peace is made, we can realize, ah, we are now upon the tribulation. And that peace is going to be broadcast to the world. But God is not pleased with this. Why? Because through the Third World War, uh, God restored the land of Israel. But for peace, they're going to compromise with the land. And at that time, the third temple will be built. And then if you look at 2 Thessalonians, it says that around that time, there will be a unification of the religions of the world. That's going to happen in the first half of the tribulation. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but logically thinking, it's probably going to happen at the same time when the one world order is established, when peace is brought to the world. Second Peter, Second Thessalonians two three talks about talks about the uh, the apostasy. And so that means that even the church is going to enter into that one world religion. They're going to acknowledge all gods. And they're going to say that there's salvation in all kinds of different uh, doctrines. And for the most part, most Christians are going to be, take part in that as well. And in that time, the church of the remnant is going to enter into suffering. And so because we do not enter into that one world religion. But that's, that's not an issue. Because suffering is something that we can pass through with God and be victorious with God. And so that's the first half of the tribulation. And so during this time, uh, all the various political entities will maintain a semblance of independence. But slowly by slowly, they're going to enter into the domination of the Antichrist. And the reason for this is because if you look at 2 Thessalonians, shall we turn to 2 Thessalonians? Yeah, because it's important, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. Are you following well after me? You're all pastors, yes? And so the words that I proclaim, you can believe 100%. If not, then uh, look into it for yourself. But that's up to you as pastors. But uh, it's going to be good to believe. And so look. Chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. 
And so they're deceiving them that Jesus has come. So do not be deceived. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed. So the man of lawlessness. And so the Antichrist must first be revealed. He is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So why is he the man of lawlessness? In Daniel 5, it says that he will uh, adjust the times, adjust the laws. And so he's going to change the feasts, the feasts of Israel. He's going to get rid of them. And all the nations of the uh, laws of the nations is going to be destroyed by the Antichrist. And that's why he's called the man of lawlessness. Now, of course, he's also going to uh, deny the word of God. And the reason why he's the son of destruction is that if they don't follow his will, he's going to go to war against them. And so in Third World War, most of the nations are going to use up most of their weapons. And for example, like China is going to be com almost completely ruined. And so even now, China is a, is a nation filled with very minor various minorities. And all these minorities are going to get their independence in the Third World War. And so whenever I go to China, I always say to the Chinese that your role is when the Third World War ends. That it's that, at that time that you need to arise. And so then, as all these weapons get used up, it comes a time where most nations do not have their own armies. That maybe only America and Israel will maintain strength for a bit. And so even now in Korea, this is one thing that I keep prophesying and praying over. That Korea would uh, be tied to America and Israel. And so that we need strength for that time. And so if necessary, we need nuclear weapons. And so that we can resist the government of the Antichrist. And so these are all prophecies of the, the book of Daniel. And that warfare is the beginning of the Armageddon. And so Armageddon begins when the second half of the tribulation begins. And the pinnacle of that Armageddon warfare happens at the end of the tribulation. It's when uh, that the armies of the nations come against. That's uh, that's the battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's about 250 kilometers north of is of Jerusalem. And if you look at the book of Daniel, the Antichrist is fighting in Africa around the region of e Ethiopia. 
And then, so when all the nations hear the news of the Battle of Armageddon, then uh, the Antichrist will bring his army north from Africa and try to attack Israel. So this is all prophecy of Zechariah. So this is how clearly and, 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 and specific the prophecies are. So if you look at verse 4, who opposes, he's opposing God. And so that's why we call him the Antichrist. And exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And so he sits himself in the temple of God and calls himself God. Though he acknowledges all the sins and all the various religions, right, that there's salvation in Buddhism, there's salvation in Islam, he acknowledges all these religions, and yet he says that he is the God of those gods. And so he sits on the temple of God. And so in these end times, what's the role of India to play? The Bible doesn't say this. But when I look at this, this, this background of how the Antichrist is going to run, it's so similar to the religious doctrine of Hinduism. What is Hinduism? It acknowledges that there are all kinds of gods, but amongst them are the most highest of them is the Brahma. And so the Antichrist is as if he's the Brahma. And so the role of India is to spread this mindset of, 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 this, of this religion. And But because this is not a prophecy written in the Bible, I am careful when I say this. But I'm trying to write down the scenario. But please don't look at India in such a weird way. Now, of course, we don't look at it in a weird way. But India is a breeding ground for demons. And so let's look at one more thing. Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And so the Antichrist needs to be uh, needs to manifest, but there's, he's unable to. There's something that's blocking him, and what is that? And so the Apostle Paul and the early church knew what was restraining him. And what is it? It was the Empire of Rome. Because Roman law was there, the Antichrist could not manifest himself. Right? With this order, the Antichrist cannot manifest. And so that's why when the third, uh, ha second half of the tribulation begins, the Antichrist is going to con uh, dominate the world and he's going to break down the system of the nation-state. That's why he is the man of destruction, the man of lawlessness. 
And so you need to be looking at this image of the end, of the, of the end times. And if you have uh, this picture, then you can see how the world is moving. Ah, what is going on in this world? Ah, God is fixing the pieces of this puzzle. And so let's continue. What else? Now the second half of the tribulation begins. And so the Antichrist finally declares himself as God in the temple of God. And then when this th second half of the tribulation begins, uh, politics, economics, uh, religion, all three of these things are going to be integrated. That is the goal of the One World Order. And this is not a new thing. But even during time of USSR of Gorbachev, he talked about this theory of perestroika. That for the peace of this world and, 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 and history, uh, everything needs to be integrated. And so this is being officially made to prepare the way for the One World Order. And the uh, warfare to conquer the nations that do not submit is going to be the warfare of Armageddon. And so the first thing that they're going to integrate is the economics to force the mark of the beast on all people. And the preparation for this is already complete. That even if two billion people were to live on this earth, the computer system to our, the computer system to 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 track them and to gather their data is already established and so the chip is going to be implanted into the body and so that man can be perfectly controlled and already 30 40 years ago uh, well, I was in America and he was invited to a very important meeting in America and what it was that into chimpanzees, they were implanting these computer chips uh, to um, adjust their behavior. And so the chimpanzee would sit and would, would be able to run uh, the shuttle uh, of the plane. And so already 40 years ago, these chips have been prepared and so the cell phone, the cell phone as it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, is going to be the mark of the beast, the 666. And so these cell phones that are in your hands right now, knows what you like, knows where you are, knows what you think about. All of these things are being gathered, this data is being gathered and we call this big data. And big data is defining you through all the information that you give it. And so it's prepared to, co to control you 
And so without the mark of the beast, you will not be able to participate in economics. This is what's going to happen in the third. Uh, and so anyways, so the first thing is the integration of the religions. And we'll see this in Revelation 13. But as I said earlier, as, as the Third World War comes to an end, the world is in chaos. And so it's going to be so much easier to convince people to receive the Mark of the Beast. And that's when the warfare, uh, battle of Armageddon will begin. And this is Revelations uh, 18, uh, 9, 16. And at the same time, in Revelations 11, Israel's, the two witnesses of Israel make themselves known. And so because of these two witnesses, the Antichrist will not be able to mess with Israel for the next three and a half years. Why? Because he is Elijah and Moses, right? That's prophesied to me. And so how much power they have. Uh, when they curse from their lips, that those lips will be planted into the ground. From their lips, it comes fire. And so what they do for the next three and a half years will, will make it so that the Antichrist cannot control Israel. And so finally at the end of this, as you see in, 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 prophecy, uh, in Psalms, that finally this time of power ends. Up to this point, there was only revival in the Gentiles, but now in this three and a half years, the revival of Israel begins. And so these two witnesses are going to witness that Jesus, that the Jesus that you have killed is the Messiah, and there's going to be great works of repentance. Now, of course, even already from the uh, Gentile perspective, there's already the two witnesses. And if you look at Revelation 12, in one way or another, the two witnesses of the Gentiles and the two witnesses of the, of the Jews will come together. And so in this day and age, the church does not fight alone. There must be the two candles. It's the pastors. Do not focus on your own individual pastoral ministry. Because you will not be victorious by just one your one church. We must be united. And that's what I've been doing for the past 32 years. And so look. Honestly, imagine of all this money that I'm pouring out on you. What if I poured it out on my church? Wouldn't it be beneficial to my church? And yet, I cannot survive on my own. And so it's time for the remnant all over the world to get, be united. And so that's what God has asked me to do. And so anyways, finally the two witnesses arise and prepare for the return of the Lord. And so finally he comes. Revelations. Uh, sorry, Zechariah 14 and Revelations 19. 
Uh, Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives and then if you connect it to Zechariah 14 how does this happen? The battle that begins at Armageddon it happens at the end of the tribulation period And so Israel begins to lose to the army of the world. And there's so many killed that the Jordan flows with blood. And finally the remnant comes arrives or the remnant church arrives at the at the church. And from the south, the Antichrist brings his army from Africa. But in this wilderness, a wilderness uh, the, the army of the remnant, the army of the Jews uh, will, is being trained and they will come to meet the army of the Antichrist. And, and it's prophesied that they will be the tribe of Judah. And I believe that's talking about Messianic Jews. Now, of course, in this process, there's going to be many signs and wonders. But they will destroy the army of the Antichrist. But uh, the army of the Jews in Jerusalem are starting to lose. And then, so they're about to, and then finally they run out of ammo, and so they're about to be destroyed. And then, so then who's going to rise up at this time is the people who have tasted the revival at the hands of the two witnesses. And they know the word of God, so therefore. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 13, it says that I will not come until you recognize me as the Messiah. Finally, one of the Jews will say, Jesus, Lord, Maranatha, come, come. And so as, as soon as this confession is made, the heavens will split open, and our Lord will come riding on a white horse. Okay, I didn't say one thing. Okay, as the two witnesses minister, about 10 days before the Lord's return, they're going to be put to death. Actually, 13 years before, or 13 days before. And then in three days, they resurrect, and then they're going to be taken up to heaven. And when they get taken up to heaven, all the children of God start to be resurrected. And this is 10 days before Jesus' return. And then they're going to meet with Jesus who is in the heavens. Right, remember three, in the beginning of the three and a half, the second half of the tribulation, uh, our Lord is going to be up in the skies. It means he's in the universe and we can see him. 
and we're going to meet with him in the heavens. And like it says in Revelations 19, that we're going to have the wedding feast of the Lamb there. The bride and the groom is going to meet together. And then so when the Jews pray like this, the heavens will split open and the Lord will come. And the brides, the priestly kings, will come together with the king. And with them, he will reign over this millennial kingdom for, for 10,000 years. And then it's here that the army of the millennial king of, of, of the Antichrist is destroyed. That as curses thrown upon them, their eyes rot away. And rockets that were fired uh, stop mid-air and go back to where, where it was fired from. You'll see amazing things like this. And then finally the Lord arrives at, at the Mount of Olives and there's going to be a great earthquake. And the temple that's buried 30 meters underneath the ground is going to rise up. And that uh, east gate is going to rise up from 30 meters underneath the earth. And only the king can go through that, that gate. And through the, uh, and through the earthquake, the golden dome, uh, the dome of the rock, and also the uh, temple is going to come down. And finally the Lord enters and he, and he takes his seat at his throne. And when you look at Zechariah 11, wow. uh, they're going to meet with the Lord who's there. And, he's going, and we're going to see the scars in his hands. And we're going to ask, why, why, why are these scars here? And what is the Lord going to say? That I received it from my, from the, at the hand of my friends. Uh, and the Jews are going to bow down and say, you are the Messiah. Amen. And for 40 days, uh, all the warfare that's been going on in Armageddon is going to come to a close. And so now the Millennial Kingdom has begun. And at the end of that 40 days, a great earthquake is going to come over the earth. And if you look at Revelations 19, or 18, it says that the entire world comes crashing down in an hour. And so there's no reason to serve this Babylon that is vain, right? Everything that was built by the hands of man will come down in an hour. And when it comes down, uh, the atmosphere of the world is going to change. It's going to open up. And all that trash is going to be taken up into, into the universe. And this is not written in Micah or in the Bible. What are they going to do with all that rubble, right? And so I think as the atmosphere gets ripped open, all things are going to be taken up in that vacuum. This is just a scenario that I've drawn in my mind. But I'm pretty sure it's accurate. 
and then uh, the, the, the firmament that, that was originally over the earth is going to come back. And so, um, all over the nations, to each nation, there's going to be priestly kings sent. And then the elders are going to come to the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they're going to build the city that Jesus is going to have dominion over the Millennial Kingdom. Now, of course, there's going to be a great commencement coronation as it says in Zechariah 6 that they're going to with all the merits on this earth he's going to uh, crown them and so I hope that you will be in that coronation and I will be there too And then, so as it says in Ezekiel 42, we're going to see how we're going to live in the Millennial Kingdom. That the priestly kings can look at him face to face at any times. Everyone else has to wait outside the gates. Who are these everyone else? Who are the crowds? the remaining people who survived the battle of Armageddon. And so Millennial Kingdom is an extension of this world. If there's a difference, is that there's no demons there. The demons are going to be uh, imprisoned in the depths. And so how, how free would it be? And then another difference, is that there will be people who have the body that we have right now and there will be people who die in the Millennium Kingdom. The only difference is that they will live much, much longer. But there still is death. Why? Because they still have the flesh. But at the same time, though there, we will exist who wear the resurrection body. And all over uh, the city of Jerusalem will be the angels. And so the spiritual and the physical will, will meet and will, will come together. So that is the Millennial Kingdom. And so I bless you that you would enter into that kingdom with me. And so I've spread out the schedule for you from his nativity until his advent. And so, and so this time frame will be God's dominion over Honduras. That God's time frame of dominion will flow through Honduras. Let us pray.